The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, June 25th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Supreme Court has handed down some important decisions today, like you gotta have a search warrant to go through someone's cell phone. And in a second, I'm going to play a little one question, one question only with Dahlia Lithwick about the Aereo ruling. But first, Aereo. Whenever I hear Aereo, I think about the chocolate bar, Arrow. You know, it's like Nestle Crunch, but with bigger bubbles. It's really quite delightful. There's a whole lot of news items like that. Like you hear a name and you can't help it, but you associate it with something else. Usually something a lot less serious or certainly less pertinent. Here's one close to example of that. Whenever you hear talk about Carmelo Anthony and they mention his wife, Lala, I can't help but think of the Teletubby by the same name. Do you think, by the way, that Carmelo Anthony, when he was out looking for a woman, he said, you know... Here is my, she, she needs to be smart, she needs to be beautiful, but mostly she needs to have a name with more flavor and whimsy than Carmelo. And there he met Lala. And whenever I think about the fighters in Iraq, ISIS, do you remember this TV show from the 70s? It was like Wonder Woman, but without all of Wonder Woman's subtlety and nuance. Do you remember? ISIS, dedicated foe of evil, defender of the weak, champion of truth and justice. But back to Aereo, which is not Aero, the candy bar, and soon won't even be Aereo, the TV rebroadcaster either. The Supreme Court, in a 6-3 to three decision, shut down the company that was supplying TV over the internet. The court recognized that Aereo's technology, little antennas in the sky, were... A loophole, a loophole around existing copyright law. In my opinion, it would have been cool if Aereo were deemed legal. I could see why it wasn't. But let's bring on Dahlia Lithwick, who covers the Supreme Court for Slate, to play one question, one question only. And right off the bat, I'm going to violate the game by asking you, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. All right, here we go. Here's the one question. Who, besides Aereo, is affected by this ruling? Well, the big winners are the broadcast networks, right? The big broadcast networks who were pushing back. They will live to see another day, Mike. And they say that a ruling for area would have destroyed them. Other big winner, uh, Professional Sports League, who were very worried that all their lucrative licensing deals with the networks would have been destroyed if third parties could just retransmit their games. Uh, believe it or not, the cloud computing industry, who was incredibly worried about this, uh, is affected only insofar as they have no idea how this affects cloud computing. Uh, but largely, the courts stayed away from issues related to cloud storage and DVRs. Representatives of the digital rights community and those who are for open and innovative new uh, technologies are very worried by the, this decision. They feel that the area holding today is going to have a big chilling effect on any kind of new innovation, efforts to do new things. They say that folks are going to look around and say, look what happened to Aereo. I'm not building it. I will tell you, Mike, the court was very careful to say this is very limited to Aereo, to their technology and what they're doing, and those guys have nothing to worry about. Uh, and finally, quite directly, Film On, which is a company that also delivers TV station signals online using antennas. They lose today because uh, Aereo lost. Thank you, Dahlia. Coming up, one of those very guys in the three part of that six to three decision, Antonin Scalia. What makes that dude tick? And in the spiel, a heap and helping of portion control. But now Emily Bazelon on identifying, defining, and prosecuting sexual assault on campus.
A couple of weeks ago, the conservative columnist George Will came under fire for a column about rape on campus, which dismissed the problem as, quote, a so-called epidemic. But he did question the claim that one in five women are sexually assaulted during their time in college. And he also talked about standards of proof. Now, in a criminal trial, guilt has to be established beyond a reasonable doubt. But before campus tribunals, the standard is lower, often just a preponderance of the evidence, and will question the fairness of that. I thought at least those issues bore discussion. So joining me now is Emily Bazelon, who covers legal issues for Slate. Hello, Emily. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about that statistic, that one in five statistic. What's the best that we know about the accuracy of those statistics? Well, that one in five number sounds high. One reason it's high is that it includes attempted sexual assaults as well as completed ones. Another reason it's high is that the Department of Justice, which collects these statistics, has really tried to get away from only counting sexual assaults that are reported as crimes. They've started trying to ask the questions in a way that will sweep in a lot of other behavior that people who say they're victims feel was assaultive or made them really uncomfortable, but that they didn't report to the police. Right. So I have, this is from one definition, uh, similar language is used on different college campuses. And they define one violation as attempted sexual contact or unwanted attempted sexual contact, not penetration, without force, the threat of non-physical punishment, promise or reward, or pestering slash verbal pressure. Sexual contact includes touching, grabbing, or fondling of breasts, buttocks, or genitals, either under or over your clothes, kissing, licking, or sucking, or some other form of unwanted sexual contact. Was that too far to, I'm specifically thinking about this pestering or verbal pressure in an attempt at unwanted sexual contact. I mean, that seems to be not only a hard thing to define, but very subjective for both parties involved. Well, all of this is subjective, right? But pestering in the service of then assaulting someone is different from just pestering. The question is, what are we letting people who want to have sex do along the way to get getting there? And I think the definition you just read is trying to send a message against coercion and force. And that force can be psychological as well as physical. Well, what's the line between psychological force and, you know, seduction? I mean, I think you, who are a sensitive man, know exactly where that line is and wouldn't cross it. Like, right. it's not actually that hard to figure out. We need more modeling of the good kind and less modeling of the pressure, I guess. But usually, you know, people who are sensitive can read cues and nuances and they can see what the person they're talking to considers banter or considers like completely inappropriate. You're right as a matter of ethics. But what about as a matter of a law or a school rule that can get you kicked out of school? In order to get expelled, you have to be found responsible for sexual assault, usually forcible sexual assault. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the lingo here. But we're not talking about expelling kids for pestering someone or, you know, coming up with the wrong line at the party. That's not what's happening. You know, it's very hard to get a rape conviction. It's hard to get a sexual assault expulsion. So 
the argument goes, perhaps we should be lowering the standard of proof uh, in the criminal courts. It's, of course, you have to convict someone beyond a reasonable doubt. But in a lot of college campuses, the standard is preponderance of the evidence, which just means 51 to 49 percent or, you know, any drop of evidence beyond an equal balancing of the scales. Granted that it's hard to get a conviction, but is that the way to correct it, to make it the standard of proof lower, therefore simply easier to get a conviction? Let me take a step back and explain to you where that standard comes from. So the Office of Civil Rights in 2011 wrote a letter to all the universities in the country saying, hey, you have independent obligations from the police to investigate sexual harassment and sexual assault. That's because of a law Congress passed in the 70s called Title IX. We usually think of Title IX as the law that means that girls have the same rights to athletics as boys. But it's not just that. It's also about assault and harassment and the procedures schools have for dealing with them. Okay, so the other thing the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education said to the schools is you have to use this preponderance of the evidence standard. You can't use a higher standard. So the preponderance isn't coming from the universities. It's coming from the federal government, which thinks this is what the courts want to have happen. I have to say, personally, I'm uncomfortable with it. It seems to me that 51% is not sure enough to expel someone from school. And I would rather see a higher standard like clear and convincing evidence and then more certainty and stiffer punishments for students who are really sure committed these offenses. So do you think that we're at a decent place in terms of discourse on the issue? Because I think of George Will. He's a patrician. He's supercilious. He doesn't care about his critics. He used phrases like the supposed epidemic of rape on campus. Yet I perceive the manner in which he was shut down to be a little bit chilling in terms of uh, discussion of the issue. I guess the question is maybe one of a pendulum, you know, for so long, the way we talked about this was awful and shameful and pretending it didn't happen. Has the pendulum swung to a way where, you know, even a corrective on some of the overstatements involved in the epidemic of campus rape has the pendulum in some instances and in some ways swung too far? I am all for you probing at this <laughs> and demanding nuance and pushing and thinking about the ambiguities. I think what George Will got in trouble for was saying that being a rape victim is a coveted status in college. That's just ridiculous and false. It sucks to be a rape victim. It sucks to be someone who comes forward and complains about sexual assault. I was recently writing about a Stanford student named Leah Francis who came forward publicly. The male student she accused was found responsible for forcible sexual assault at Stanford. He got almost no punishment, total slap on the wrist, the opposite of expelled. And what she said to me afterward is that she feels crushed by her university. This is still a really hard role to be in. And the notion that, you know, somehow girls are lining up to be victims and that this is some desirable thing, it's ludicrous. And I think that's what George Will got in trouble for. And the kinds of questions you're asking are so much more interesting and helpful than any contribution he was making. I just feel like this isn't a good example. When you get shut down, then I'll be worried. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) They came for George Will and you said nothing. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I'm saying nothing. I'm saying the opposite of nothing. When they come for you, Mike, then we can talk about it. Thanks, Emily. Emily Bazelon covers the courts for Slate, and she's written a ton about sexual assault on campus. Thank you, Emily. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
I've often thought that Antonin Scalia is one of the most fascinating people in modern life. His mind is adroit, his opinions are influential, and his impact, actually, his impact maybe could be bigger. And that's one of the insights I gleaned from reading this huge biography of the justice by Bruce Allen Murphy. Bruce Allen Murphy is the Fred Morgan Kirby Professor of Civil Rights at Lafayette, and he's written Scalia, A Court of One. Hello, Bruce. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm well. So from reading the book... I got an insight, and let me test it out on you about Scalia. Antonin Scalia would rather be right than be impactful. Do you think that sums him up? Yes. I think that I would – I'm an academic, so you always like to tailor the, the uh, explanation. Right. I think that the full explanation is Antonin Scalia would rather be right than be politically effective on his own court – so long as he could create a long-term legacy. That's a lot of things for a justice to want, and usually you can't get to have all of them. Well, that's right. And usually the game is you show up and there are five votes. You need five votes to accomplish anything. And everybody figures out pretty quickly, I better figure out where all the cliques are on the court. How do I tailor my views? How do I tailor my opinion in order to pick up votes so that I can be controlling the majority? But in Scalia's case, he decided from the very beginning, I have an answer that I think is great for America. Yeah. I am dedicated to that answer. I am certain about that answer. And, and if necessary, I will bludgeon my colleagues. Maybe they will come to my side. I will function as a court of one because eventually people down the road may see my views as the correct one. He doesn't have any interest, I think, in playing the political game of, I will cut this paragraph, I will tailor my views to get your vote, because that's not his game. His game is, here is my answer, Right. let's go with that. And it's not the case that he couldn't be a more political justice, a you know, Warren Berger, one of these guys who created coalitions. That's not the case if you look at, A, his personality, and B, his own personal history. He actually has two facets to his personality. The one part that we've been talking about is the, the, uh, the vicious, incredibly intelligent argumentation expert who was a championship college debater. He was Nino Scalia. He was one of the best debaters in the country at the time, in the 1950s. The other part of his personality is he was a very gregarious, well-liked, charismatic actor who was known in the newspapers as Tony Scalia. I think what Ronald Reagan thought he was going to get in 1986 was Tony Scalia. He thought he would get a very smart man who would be able to bring together the conservative wing of the court, just as William Brennan did for the Warren Court in the 1960s. But instead, the fellow who showed up was Nino Scalia. Is anyone having more fun as a justice than Antonin Scalia? I can't imagine that they are. One of the things I really like about Scalia is if anybody has a chance to see him on the lecture circuit, by all means go. It is, a, it is an amazing show. I, I do take him to task a little bit in the book for getting out among the people off the court and trying to explain cases and criticizing his colleagues and setting up the court for criticism. But the part of it that's good is he makes the court the center of attention and he makes people think about what the court should be doing. I think at heart he's an academic, and he realizes that he can give his speech and then take questions. You just don't see that from justices usually. Yeah. Take questions from people and say controversial things. 
So he seems to be having quite a good time on the court. I've always said that I think he's a vital public intellectual, and this guy should definitely have a, a podcast or a column. I just don't love the fact that he affects my freedoms. He has his podcast, but it's called His Decisions, <laughs> and, and it's called His Ability to Go Out and Speak. I like the part of Scalia that when he was uh, confirmed for the court, he was confirmed 98 to nothing. They didn't know what he was getting. They never talked about his originalism theory because he hadn't invented it yet. They never talked about his Catholicism. They didn't say very much about his ideological viewpoint. Over time, he has helped to explain to people, this is how judging is done. And in doing that, he's able to bring the court to the center of attention and allow people to make up their own minds as to where the court is going. The thing about Scalia is he's not a typical justice in the sense that He's one of the very smartest people who's ever served on the court. And now it's harder and harder to get those kind of controversial people who are very smart to be confirmed because the Senate won't allow it in its filibuster-prone nature. Is his relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg as warm as it's often portrayed? It absolutely seems to be. It goes all the way back to when they were on the Court of Appeals. They've had dinners together. They have gone out to the opera. They've gone traveling and now he seems to be developing a similar relationship with Justice Kagan. They go out skeet shooting, and they go out hunting, and Justice Kagan talks about him with some fondness. You see the kind of justice he could have been. Mm -hmm. What if he had been, like Brennan, like Ronald Reagan was expecting, and had worked on a court of five? How effective would he have been? What would his legacy have been, as opposed to being the kind of lone wolf, win at all cost, the justice that he has been? Bruce Allen Murphy is the author of Scalia, A Court of One. Thank you so much, Bruce. Thanks, Mike. It was a pleasure. And now the spiel. You know, the show, it's gone a little long today, so I want to spiel shorter than usual. Actually, please don't think of it as a short spiel. Think of it as exhibiting the best practices of portion control. Portion control, more specifically, enforced corporate portion control, once known as giving you less food for your money, is now the vanguard of responsible marketing. I give you the case of Sargento Cheese. Oh, you say, I knew Sargento Cheese won an award at the International Dairy Foods Association. What do you think? I miss the Mooies? What with their black and white spotted carpet and interviewers shouting, you look fab, who are you milking? By the way, Joan Rivers also plays the Mooies, and she also calls everyone a cow there, but it's seen as high praise. Anyway, at the Mooies, Sargento won a prize for their innovation in ultra-thin sliced cheeses. Basically, now follow me here, this is going to get complicated. You take a regular slice of cheese, and you slice it a little more. All right, there's your Mui. But the Mui wasn't even the award that I was talking about. No, they won a coveted innovation award from Nielsen. You have to wait two years to win this award. So two years ago, 3,500 new consumer packaged goods hit the market. This is food, light bulbs, socks, sinus medication, pet food. And the award goes to the products that had at least $50 million in sales the first year and at least $45 million in sales the next year. Because they want to do it over two years to show that they could sustain the sales. They don't want to get burned like they did with Pop Rocks and Pepsi Clear. So out of 3,500 products, guess how many did that much in sales two years straight? 14. And Sargento Ultra Thin Slices was one of those 14. That is innovation. Slice the cheese a little thinner. 
you're a hero. Or you're my grandmother cutting up garlic for the sauce. Slice it thinner! But actually, it's not that easy to ride the portion control gravy train to Fat City or the medium-sized serving of gravy train to not-so-fat city. Portion control, once a big food trend, is now slipping. The Wall Street Journal today reports that sales of those packages of snacks that are exactly 100 calories, they've been slipping for the last two years. 100 calories is just not enough for some people. That, by the way, is 2.222 slices of Sargento ultra-thin cheese, so it seems pretty generous to me. But anyway, the journal illustrates the point about the downfall of these 100-calorie snack packs with a quote from Becky Shaver, 27 years old. Becky Shaver, 27 years old, says she often buys boxes of 100-calorie packs of snacks like popcorn. Quote, the individual packaging makes it easier for me to stop eating, she said. But sometimes I come home and find my husband got halfway through the box in a day. Becky Shaver, 27 years old, apparently married to an untrained Labrador retriever. Down, Fudgy, down! But no, it's true. Even the Cheesecake Factory is getting in on the portion control game. You know the Cheesecake Factory slogan, a microcosm of society on every plate? The new Cheesecake Factory is offering a skinny-licious menu. Skinny-licious is the kind of word that a thin person thinks of to attract a fat person. The kind of word a fat person thinks of to attract a once-but-no-longer-skinny person? That'd be Cheesecake Factory. Still, the portion control trend waddles on. Impose portion control, I should say. And I'm going to impose some portion control on myself, and I will stop the spiel here. I could have ended with a bon mo, if not a bon bon. I mean, I could wrap it up with a cherry on top, but that would add eight extra calories and blow your whole diet. And that's it for the show today. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcast. Hey, you know how in the beginning of the show I was talking about words in the news that remind you of other things, you know, ISIS? Andrea had one about today's show. What was that, Andrea? I was thinking about Anton and Scalia, uh, which I always have a hard time saying. And I was thinking it would be cool. It's like a band. Yeah. Anton and Scalia, Captain and Tennille. (laughs) So you think of Captain and Tennille. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And actually, it's true. In the case of Muskrat v. Love, he did provide the deciding vote. Andy Bowers, before taking on the title of executive producer of Slate Podcasts, pioneered a combination of deal a meal and jazzercise. It was called Jazzmataz and was shut down as a Ponzi scheme by the SEC. You could subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a review. You could search for Slate Gist in a podcast app on your Android or iOS device. Facebook.com slash Slate Gist is a place that we go to and post things. Email us at thegist at slate.com. A gist for breakfast, a gist for lunch, and then a sensible dinner. Thanks for listening.